upcoming marriage conference on April 26th I know we've seen, I know we've seen, but I'm hoping that you'll mark your calendar, mark plan to attend, plan to attend, planning to attend, our speakers, Kurt and Rhonda Hayward, have been offering a great, wise, great, wise, practical, pastoral, marriage counseling for the past 30 years. So reserve Friday, April 26th, and Saturday, April 27th, on your for our next marriage conference. It will be an enriching experience.
Grace Community Church. We are so delighted to see you and be with you this morning as we worship our God. We are so grateful to come together. I love hearing the body of Christ lifting up your voices in worship. And worship is such a special time because we get to do two things together. We get to fix our eyes in two different ways. We fix our eyes, I think, first on who we are and that we need Jesus. We come from a place of desperate need for him. And we see that he is so worthy of all that we are. He's so worthy to be magnified. In our lives at the same time, in looking at at ourselves and how desperate and sinful and needy we are, we see God. We see Jesus. We see him in his glory and how worthy he is and how good he is. And so this morning and and every day, when we take the time to reflect on the fact that God is so great and we are so not, and because of that, we worship him. So let's do that now as we sing together, Christ be magnified.
that's actually happening right now as we're having this service together. A bunch of our youth are at a retreat right now. They're up in Arnold, enjoying some time together and spending time in the Word of God. I thought, what better use of our time right now than to pray for them. So I invite you right now as you're sitting to think of someone that you know that's in the youth group. Maybe you know some of our students. Maybe you are a student currently here who didn't go on that trip. You can think of one of your friends. And if you can't think of someone that you know, I invite you and I challenge you to get to know some of our young people in this church. Because I think it's really easy to think of them as, oh, it's just the kids, you know. It's just it's just the young people. It's just the kids. But in reality, they are people that we can be learning from. They are the next generation of this church. And it is our job to be invested in their lives. So if you don't know one of them, get to know them. And I'm not saying just get to know their name. I'm saying get to know their life and their story. Get to know how you can be praying for them. Maybe it's school or something just within themselves. Get to know them. That's my challenge for you. Maybe you know a family that has a student in the group. You can pray for that family. And maybe you think of the leaders. I think of my dear friend Andrew. I think of DK. I think of these people who pour out their lives for our students. And I know that I, for one, am a person who was changed because of the people who poured into me as a member of the youth group at this church. So let's take a few minutes and just on your own with whoever is in your mind or coming to your heart right now. Pray for those people. Pray for the leaders. Pray for the students that they would encounter God, not only today, but every day of their lives. Father, we thank you for this weekend, this weekend and what these wonderful students have these had, the opportunity, have had the opportunity to do, to get to get away, spend time together, and have fun. More importantly than that, they've gotten to learn more about what it means, more about what it means to encounter the living God, the one who created them, who made them for a purpose. Lord, we pray for our students. We pray that you would be helping them fight against the things of this world that are trying to beckon them into thinking that self is the most important thing. We would be a church that would build them up. That we would get to know them, get to know their needs, their stories, their likes, their dislikes. Lord, pray that we'd be the type of people that know them so that they can feel at home here. They can feel like they are truly, like they members, are of truly the members of the body, which they are. But I love that you had Paul write to Timothy. That he should not let anyone, he look, down not let anyone look down on him because he is young, but that he, 
and many young people can set an example for other believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Would we look to our students as people we can learn from? Would you draw them ever closer to yourself? In Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and stand with us as we sing another song together.
great is his faithfulness. Go ahead and have a seat. And at this, this time, we would love to dismiss our elementary school students to go ahead and find Miss Alba in the back. She's got her big sign. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 through 25. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Morning, everybody. Thank you, Casey, for that. Those verses, the first two pages of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, and that little section there are some of the most familiar and widely read verses and pages of Scripture. And most likely you've heard those verses one or twice or many times before. I would argue, though, that those first two pages of the Bible, while being widely read and familiar, also may be some of the most deeply misunderstood 
pages of the Bible. And one of the unfortunate things about this, and I think you understand this, is that in our culture, about the only time it seems like these days that these pages get trotted out in front of us is in the form of debate or argument or controversy. It's a lot like two people going to the Louvre in Paris and standing in front of the Mona Lisa. These two people are having a vigorous debate about the Mona Lisa and whether it was painted in 1503 or in 1506. Did you know that that's an actual debate? People aren't really sure. Scholars of da Vinci's work have wondered that. 1503, 1506. And they're arguing about what size of brush did da Vinci use? And what exactly is Lisa doing? And who exactly was she? What's her biography? What's her story? And why is she the one sitting in that portrait and not somebody else? And so these two people are having this vigorous debate about all of these things that are actually debated by real art historians, and they could agree or they could agree to disagree and then walk away from each other, what will they not have done? Just stand in front of the Mona Lisa and be quiet and ponder it, enjoy it as a work of art, as a work of genius, recognize the beauty of the composition and the realism of it, the way that da Vinci uses light in the painting and you know, just the perspective and the spacing of it all, the texturing and size. What they end up never doing, because they're so busy trying to get their point across to the other person, is just appreciating it as an artistic statement all on its own. Wouldn't that be tragic if that's what we did with the first two chapters of the Bible in our modern cultural setting? How rarely do we just pause, be quiet, listen, and appreciate the message of these verses. It's one of the reasons why we're doing this sermon series that we began last week, where we're not simply considering creation so that we can debate it. We're exploring the goodness of creation and the beauty and the meaning of all that God has made, of what it means that God is the creator in the hopes, not that we can have some points that we can then debate other people. That may happen. But what we really want to see happen is that God would open the eyes of our understanding with a fresh revelation of who he is, blowing our minds, causing our hearts and our minds to expand more and more in knowledge of him and ultimately in love of him. That's the goal. Last week, Pastor Dan reminded us every culture, past cultures, present cultures, future cultures, have all asked the same questions. Where are we from? How did we get here? How did anything get here? And every culture has their own story or cosmology that is intended to address these kinds of questions. And there is some overlap sometimes between some of these stories, including some of the Christian story that overlaps with some of these ancient Near East kind of narratives. But what we're learning is that what is unique about the Christian story is that instead of asserting, like many cosmologies do, that there was originally chaos and then God arose out of the chaos, the Christian story asserts that intentionality and order preceded the chaos, that God existed before the chaos and before organized matter. And one of the key reasons Pastor Dan shared with us last week why this is so important and why this series is so important is because the more that we reflect on the order of it all and the more that we reflect on God's intentionality by the eternal designer, the more than that that foundation will inform how we view why we're here, how we view our purpose in life and why we get up in the morning and our values, our worth, 
what we're called to do. So we're going to build on that foundation today by taking a high view of Scripture and hopefully engaging with this text in a spirit of graciousness and humility, which I think is sadly often lacking among various Christians when we're dealing with this kind of text. But hopefully we can do so again in a spirit of graciousness and humility as we take a closer look at the first six days of creation. We won't cover the creation of humans today, Pastor Dan, we'll cover that next week though. While there are lots of different directions we could obviously take this, I just want to point out three themes in this passage that I see and I hope that we'll all see. First thing that this passage teaches us is about the essence of creation. And by that I mean, what does it actually mean when we say that God is creator? When we say that God created, what does that entail when the scriptures talk about that? So the essence of creation. Secondly, we're going to see the focus of creation. Where is this story really focused? And unfortunately, we can get focused on all kinds of things, but where should our focus be? And then third, the declarations of creation. What is it that creation declares or reveals to us? So first, the essence of creation. One of the principal attributes of God, you need to know this if this is new information to you. If you were a Christ follower, one of the affirmations that Christ followers throughout the centuries have affirmed is that God is Creator, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That conviction is foundational for us as Christians. But what all is entailed in viewing God as creator? When the scriptures say God created, again, what does that mean? One way to think about this is the concept of created as being like a creator is someone who makes something new. And we're familiar with that. People create, and I put that in quotes, we create art projects, we create musical compositions, we create physical structures. However, none of these things are technically new in that they always have something else that precedes it to work with or to work from. They begin with something pre-existing, pre-existing matter or ideas or concepts, and then they form it into new ways. But even music and other intellectual enterprises and creations have pre-existent rhythms and rhymes and notes and instruments and artistic mediums that provide the structure and the other possibilities for this new thing to be. And so what is commonly called creativity in our day really is more akin to synthesis, isn't it? If you think about it. But God, Genesis 1 affirms, had no such raw materials to work with when he created the, the world. And if he did use raw materials, well, he was the one who created those raw materials. So when we say God is the creator, when scripture says God created, what does that mean? What we mean, what scripture means is that God is truly creative. He's in a category and class all by himself because only he alone is able to make something out of nothing. And when the Bible says that God is the creator, it also means that no one created him. He alone is the creator. Satan cannot create, can only pervert what God creates. People can't not truly create, right? We synthesize, but we cannot truly create because we have to start with something that has already been created. Everything originates, Scripture says, from God. He simply willed creation into being, and there isn't anything that God hasn't made. Everything that has ever existed is something that God created. 
He spoke it into existence seven times in these verses that Casey read. The text says, and God said, and God said, and God said. So the point here seems to be that God never creates without saying something, without speaking. Creation comes from the very voice of God. It's not an accident. And his word is obviously different from our word. When I say, let there be light, I need some help with that. I need someone to help make that happen or something. When God says that he doesn't need anything, he doesn't even have to make the light. He simply speaks and it is light. So when it says that God created, I want us to expand our thinking about what that really means. That's, that's an incredible affirmation. We have to understand God's word is an agent. It has power and agency, unlike your word or my word or anyone else's word in all of history. That's what we are affirming or should be affirming when we are saying God created. There's one more facet, though, of God as creator that I think we tend to overlook. We don't think about as much. You see, to create something in the ancient world, meaning the world of the people who would have received this text and heard it originally, instead of reading this as a 21st century individual, thinking about it as what would this have meant in that culture, in that day, for those individuals, by and large, from the literature that we've, uh, historians and archaeologists have studied, to create something in the ancient world is to give something primarily a function. That was the common understanding of people in the, at least in the ancient Near East. We today tend to think about the creation of material things, material origins. And while that is one valid way of thinking about creation, yes, inhabitants of the ancient world and the writers of this text thought far more of existence as defined by having a function in an ordered system rather than creation simply in a material sense. And so when we consider what it means that God is creator, we ought to think in terms of function first and order first. For example, think about the difference between a house and a home. When we talk about the building of a house, like the houses some of us built in Baja, Mexico about a month ago on our mission trip, we're generally talking about the physical structure of the house, the foundations, the framing, the siding, the roof, the electricity, the plumbing. That's the physical material house. But then there's a different level, and that is making that house your home. Meaning, how is your house going to function? How are these rooms going to be ordered? What is the purpose of these things? What furniture goes where? What room are you going to use? And in what way? Where's my room? Where's your room? So ordering, giving it function, is what makes that house a home. Now, building a house, I think we would agree, is not the same thing as building a home. But they're both creative activities, are they not? But which of those is more important, building a house or building a home? Most people, I think, would say that you cannot have a home without a house, although if we visited some different cultures today, we might come to a different conclusion about that. But you could also say, well, what good is a house if it's not a home? The point is, is that we here in Western Christianity tend to prioritize one over the other, the house or, or the home. And when we in our culture in our day tell creation stories and focus on Genesis 1 and 2, we tend to really, really, really want the house story. 
I want to know about the material origins and all of these things. We want to know how did God physically make all of this? And there is certainly value in that. We've got some brilliant minds in this room and you all explore these things and that's incredible. I would simply suggest that Genesis 1 doesn't appear to be nearly as interested in explaining the how though as much as it is in explaining why it came to be. But then that frustrates us. So what we end up doing is going, no, 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 no. I have an explanation for the how here. So we end up sometimes, I think, pushing the details of the whole thing and making the text communicate something that it never intended so that it will then fill our own context and our own ideas and our own assumptions. But when we're talking about God as creator, the essence of creation, the essence of God as creator, we should resist that temptation to limit ourselves to only thinking about creation on a material level. So as creator, God provides the house story, yes, but he also provides the home story, meaning he alone dictates how creation is ordered, the function of it all, how things work, what is the meaning behind all these things, and that is the essence of creation when we say that God is creator, the essence of what it means that God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, he formed it materially and physically, but he also gives it a function and a purpose. Secondly, I think this text is teaching us and reminding us of where our focus should be, the focus of creation. I shared a moment ago that our focus as 21st century Western Christians is almost always on how God made the world, and we debate that vigorously. But the biblical teaching, I said, I would argue, seems much more focused on the why behind it all. So not the method of creation as much as the meaning behind it. You see the difference there? That is the focus. And so look at day one, verses three to five. On the first day of creation, it says that God created light. He said, let there be light, and there was light. But then it says that God calls the light day. Here's a question. Why didn't God simply call light light? Isn't that what light is? Why would he call the light day? For one reason, I think, despite our own modern concept of light as a material object, People in the ancient Near East that would have received this text, we are told, thought of light more as a condition and not so much as a physical object. Well, what's the point? The point is that by calling the light day, the text is, I think, trying to help us to focus on understanding the word light to mean, really mean more a period of light. Otherwise, verse 5 would really make no sense. As a result, God called the period of light day, and he called the period of darkness night. So God separated the light from the darkness. It's really saying God separated the period of light from the period of darkness. So what we're really talking about here is not simply the creation of light, although that's mind-boggling in and of itself. Yes, God created light, but it's really talking about the creation of time itself. That's amazing. He's giving light a function. On the second day of creation, verses 68, God creates a vault between the waters to separate uh, water from water. So what is the vault? We hear that term. What is the vault? In the ancient culture of the biblical authors, the sky was perceived as a solid dome or a vault or a canopy that would hold back the waters. And so God is depicted here in Genesis 1 as splitting the chaos waters in half above and below, which then creates the realms of the sky and the seas. And some people can draw this out to see an allusion perhaps to the water cycle. 
Terrestrial and subterranean water exists below the sky, while water vapor and water in the form of clouds rise above, separated from the surface water by an expanse of what? Of air. And since Genesis 1, as I've suggested, and others have suggested, seems more focused on answering why, which is an issue related to function and purpose and the meaning of it all, rather than how, which would be the method of creation, then that allows us to focus more on what is the twofold cosmic function that the sky was created to fulfill. Its first role, we're told, was to create the space in which God's people could eventually live. And the second function was to serve as a mechanism by which precipitation was controlled. He's not simply creating sky, he's creating all the other things that go along with it. The means by which weather would operate. So too little precipitation? We know that the eventual people and animals that would show up on the scene would die. Too much precipitation, the eventual people and the animals would be overwhelmed. It's amazing. God's creating materially, but he's also creating with function. On the third day of creation, verses 9 to 13, God creates the dry ground, the seas, the plants, the trees. Think about the sheer diversity of all he's creating on this day here. The grass, the bushes, vines, flowers, vegetables, speaking trees into being, including fruit trees, conifers, nut trees, ornamentals, all of it. Look at what God is doing here. He is forming the earth into a place that is more suitable, again, for life. And from a functional perspective, since, again, we should be thinking functionally, the soil, the water, the principle of seed bearing are all very much related as essential to what? To the production of food. All because God is willing it and speaking these things into being. Making these things, yes, giving it a function, essential to the production of food. So after days one through three, what do we have? We have the realm of time. No big deal, right? We have the basis for weather. We have the realm of the skies and the seas. We have the basis for food, for goodness sake. And we have the realm of the land and the plants and the trees, and they all have order. So now it's time for God to fill these realms of days one through three with inhabitants. And that is what happens days four through six. And it's not just that God created these things. That's mind-blowing in and of itself. But that he brought these things together in such a way that they actually work. Been thinking about recently just the different things that we take for granted. For instance, the ability to see. It's not just that God makes our eyeballs, but when, but when they function the way that they're supposed to be, that is incredible. We should never lose the wonder of all this. So, fourth day of creation, verses 14 to 19, God creates lights in the vault of the sky. We're obviously talking here about the sun, moon, stars, nebula, heavenly bodies, the galaxies. Such a simple statement. But again, the sheer number of things God is creating on the fourth day are staggering. And it was easy for God. No problem. And we're not precisely told exactly how God did it, again, except that he spoke these things. But we're given the why behind it all. What is the why? What is the function? What is the purpose of these things? These things are formed in order to separate the day from the night and to give light to the earth and to serve as signs and symbols that reflect God's own life. That's what the text says. Fifth day of creation, verses 20 to 23. God creates all of the aquatic animals the large whales, the Leviathan. If you read the Old Testament, you hear about the Leviathan, this, this, this creature. We're not entirely sure what it is that's in the waters, but it was terrifying and gigantic. God creates these things. Varying types of fish and sharks and mollusks. 
Even the smallest of organisms like the plankton, no problem for our great designer. And then he also creates all of the flying creatures, so birds, bats, and all of our giant flying reptile friends from Jurassic Park. Again, no big deal, right? Notice God not only speaks these things into being, but he gives them a function. What is their function? Their job was to fill and to team the waters, to fly through the air and to be fruitful and to multiply. And then on the sixth day of creation, verses 24 to 31, although again, we're only covering up to verse 25. Pastor Dan will cover the rest next week. God created the land animals and the pinnacle of his creative work. God created humans. And like the aquatic creatures and the flying creatures, the land animals also have a function. What is it? To reproduce after their own kind and to fill the earth. Why? That's what God made them to do. So in days four through six, don't miss this, the functionaries of the cosmos are now installed in their appropriate positions and they're given their assignments and their appropriate roles. If we use a corporate analogy here, after day six, these things are assigned their offices or their cubicles. They're told to whom they will report. They're given their idea of their place in the company. They're, the workday is determined by the clock. They're now expected to be productive. And so the plant is now ready for operation. Amen. One of the cool things to me, at least, about walking through these days together in the way we just did is to see there's an obvious order to the whole thing here. It's not an accident. Days one through three are days primarily of forming in which God is creating the space or the places of inhabitation. Days of forming, and then days four through six are days of filling, forming and filling. The filling days in which God creates the inhabitants of those places. And this forming and this filling corresponds so beautifully to verse two, which we looked at last week, in which the earth, we are told, was originally without form and void. But God is addressing the formlessness of the whole creation in the first three days of creation, and then he addresses the emptiness of it in the second three days. And if you aren't blown away by all of these things, if you and I are not moved to say, thank you, Lord, you are indescribable, you are amazing, man, we need a heart transplant. If we're not moved to say, thank you, God, you are amazing, seriously, that God would put all these things together. So we've covered the essence of creation and what this passage has to say about what it means that God is creator, all that it means. And we've looked at the focus of creation, where our focus really should be, and seen how this account is more about the why than it is about the how, the meaning more than the method. But we've also got to notice here the declarations of creation. What is creation revealing to us? And the number one thing, creation, is declaring and revealing more than anything else is the utter greatness of God. There's a show on Netflix called The World's Most Extraordinary Homes, and the show features an award-winning British architect named Piers Morgan, or Piers Taylor, not Piers Morgan, and a British actress and property enthusiast named Caroline Quinton. And each episode has these people traveling around the world. They're discovering some amazing architectural designs that are usually stunning and set in some amazing places that are just majestic. And in one episode, the hosts tour a nine-bedroom house built into the side of a hill on a Greek island. And they finish up a segment by sticking their feet in a pool, overlooking the crystal blue sea, and they're facing west, and it's sunset. And it is a picture-perfect sunset. Do you get the picture? 
And it is then that Caroline Quinton turns to her co-host, Pierce Taylor, and says, I defy anybody, she says, to look at this view and not think that they found paradise. Now, if you watch the clip for just a moment, it really seems like she's about to make a really profound theological statement. It's almost like she's going to say, I defy anybody to look at this view and tell me that there isn't a God. That would have been a logical conclusion. And unfortunately, that's not what she said. That's okay. But you and I are understanding the creator behind the creation here. Why are we so moved by nature? Why are we so moved by settings like this poolside view or wherever your happy place is in the world? Why are we so moved by that? Christian author, Pastor Gary Thomas, several years ago wrote a book called Sacred Pathways. And I really like the book because it describes nine different primary ways that people connect and feel close to God. Sort of a spiritual temperaments kind of an idea. Nine different sacred pathways by which people tend to connect with God. And I don't know about you, but I'm personally one of those people that relate to God and draw closer to Him when I'm outside, not when I'm inside. I would much rather personally pray or do church outside than I would inside. I love looking out at the ocean. And if you've ever gone with me and Shannon to look at the ocean, you know that that's my thing. And you can't pull me away from it too easily. People are like, Shannon, is he still going to keep on looking? Yes, that's what I do. I look at the ocean. I absolutely love sunsets. And by the way, did you know that there's a, here's a little trivia. Did you know that there's an actual word for that if you like sunsets? If you like sunsets, you are an opacarophile. That's what I am. It's a Greek word meaning one who loves sunsets. Not making it up. That's me. I love staring up at the stars. I love rainbows, although not quite as much as the double rainbow guy that used to be on YouTube, and he's crying because of the double rainbow. But I do love rainbows, and we've gotten to see several recently. I even love watching how water moves in like a creek. My son CJ and I were out there, and I was talking about how the way the water moves to me is a metaphor for life, and ask me about it sometime, and I'll bore you with it. But trust me, I see God even in those things. I know I'm weird. You would think I'd be more into camping, and I'm really not, because my own theology is that on the eighth day, God created hotels and beds. That's just me. <laughs> I like camping if you take the C away and you replace it with a G and an L for glamping. Uh, I do enjoy that. But again, why are we so moved by creation and by nature? Genesis 1 is telling us why. It is nature singing the praise of its maker. Creation is God's cathedral, and all of nature is a choir. What is all of nature singing? It is singing and declaring the glory and the greatness of God. That's what Psalm 19.1 tells us. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. In other words, nature is constantly talking to us, saying, open up your eyes. It is talking to us about God it is revealing a God who is not a created being, a figment of our imaginations. Genesis was revealing an all-powerful God who is limitless and who has no rival, who is absolutely without beginning and without end, a God of order and beauty and creativity and intelligence who is other than his creation, who created everything out of nothing. So what we see in nature is meant to constantly show us not just the greatness of God, but that God exists. God is revealing himself to us. Well, I don't really see God at work. Open your eyes. 
Genesis 1 is telling us. God is revealing himself to us, making himself known and inviting us to sing back to him. That's what we were all created to do. So what we see in creation is the greatness of God, but we also see the goodness of creation itself. These verses repeat the refrain several times that after creating something, it says, God saw that it was good. What does it mean that it was good? How is creation good? In what ways? What does that mean? Well, if Genesis 1 is describing an act of creation as taking something that was previously unproductive and non-functional, then what he's doing is he's making something that is productive and that is functional, then that repeated formula, it was good, is logically referring to something that is now functioning the way it was designed to be. It's functioning properly. In other words, this is the way it's supposed to be. And we can further understand what is meant by saying that all of these things are good by considering what it would mean for something not to be good. And fortunately for us, the verses that come after this offer such an opportunity because it says God creates the man and says it is not good for the man to be alone. What is that telling us? That verse is not so much talking about the quality of God's workmanship. It's ta- it, 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 it is a comment regarding function, indicating that the human condition is not functionally complete without the woman. So we ought to see the goodness of creation, and the importance of creation, and we need to know friends, that God so loved this world that he was willing to send his son to redeem it and to redeem us. God did not just fashion the world and take his hands off it, as deists claim. God wants us to know him. He invites us to know him, to see him, to love him, and to be loved by him. How tragic it would be then if we would ever, ever, ever look for life in a place where it can't be found, from created things rather than from the creator. I wish I could say I never look for life or meaning from anything other than God, but the temptation to do this is present every day. As much as we know that there is a God who made us and who loves us, we still hunt for God replacements. We all, tend to t- we all still tend to look horizontally for what we will only ever find vertically. There are times, for instance, when we attach our identity to the respect of another person or when we draw too much of our sense of well-being from our appearance or our possessions or from our achievements or when we think possessions have the power to make us happy or when we try to base our identity on anything or anyone else or when we look to food or drink to satisfy us and to calm us or when we continually think or say, if I only had this, then I'd be sad and I'd be content. There is nothing in all of creation that you or I can't or don't try to make our own personal Messiah. We are all guilty of these things, but it never, ever, ever works. As amazing and wonderful as creation is, the creation can never give you and me what the creator alone can. It makes no sense at all for us to desperately look for what we have already been given by God. All the good and and glorious created things that God puts into our lives are things that God has designed and he has placed there, why? To point us to the only place where life can ever be found, in him. Creation is pointing us like a sign to the creator, away from itself 
to the creator, but creation and created things can never give us what the creator can give us, true life, eternal life, abundant life, meaning, purpose, and a peace that passes all human understanding. Because we know that God created all things and he holds all things together. That is what gives us peace. Our great creator is not only the author of life, he is life. So there is no need to look for it anywhere else. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed at the work of your hands. The heavens declare the glories of God. And it's singing that you are great and good and that we need you. I pray that everyone here in this room, Lord, would repent of ways that we look to created things to give us life and meaning and purpose. That we would repent of just ho-humming our way as through life as we think about creation as if it's no big deal. Father, we are in awe of who you are. And your word is reminding us that you are the maker of all things, but you also give things function and purpose. And all of creation is fulfilling the purpose for which you have created it, except for us. I pray, God, that we would not resist your leading to mold us and to shape us into the purpose for which you created us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he gave his life on the cross as an atonement for our sin, that he came into this messed up world to give his life for us as a substitute. And there is life in him and salvation in him alone. May your name be pleased, Lord. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart as we meditate on this passage may be pleasing God to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Steve. Let's stand and respond in worship.
Reverend Austin, who is one of our elders, here to close out our service today. As you can see, it's not just Austin. This is my son, Jack, who has decided that he is not done with his nap. So, amen to that. Thank you, worship team, for uh, all you do. And uh, what a great way to end the service. I love that line, Jesus to know you and then know you more. Well, uh, besides making history with, I believe, the youngest person to help close the service, uh, I have a few things to uh, tell you. Uh, one is we have this one-stop shop. You might have heard of it, bridges.info. Uh, if you have sermon questions, if you want to continue this conversation, if you have other questions about uh, the faith, really anything. Uh, go on to bridges.info. Uh, bridges. There's a form you can fill out, and one of our pastors can get in touch with you. We'd love to engage with you. And uh, in addition, on bridges.info, you can also manage your online giving. Uh, you can set up recurring gifts or give one-time gifts. Uh, that's how we uh, keep this show moving. So uh, we appreciate all those gifts and, uh, giving what the, the Lord has blessed us with. Uh, and then finally, uh, on bridges.info, but also in the back atrium, you can see uh, there's a table there for an upcoming event, the, uh, Walk for Life, the, uh, Walk for so, Life. Uh, make sure to check, so, uh, make sure to check that out, learn about the event, and, uh, with, that, and uh, with that, I'll give us a charge as we go out. May we all, May we all go out, and, go out sing and sing that song of creation, and show that Jesus, or tell people of Jesus' grace, grace and mercy to everyone around us, always thank God. Always thank God. Amen. Amen.